0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz
1: every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sprinkled with peanut farms and relics of its prosperous railroad beginnings, many consider the everyday quiet of Midland City as a comforting trait of the community. There are no surprises or tragedies to upset the familiar nature of the town. The everyday routine of Midland City has cultivated a tight knit community. Residents are bound together by faith, family, and friendship, making it the kind of small town where everyone knows their neighbor, for better or for worse. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Neighbors of Jimmy Lee Dykes knew him as a recluse, a man consumed with anger, paranoia, and a hatred for the government. The 65 year old decorated Vietnam War veteran had nothing to his name in Midland City. He formerly worked as a land surveyor and truck driver and spent his days living out of a rundown van on his 100 acre property. Estranged from his family, Dykes lived in isolation. He was known to patrol his property armed with either a shovel, or gun. Neighbors recall him as a man of a hostile nature. One neighbor had even reported Dykes to the police for pulling a gun on him after accusing him of trespassing. Another woman claimed he beat her dog to death with a pipe. Dykes was a man to be avoided at all costs, but one schoolboy had no choice. It was a normal school day for five-year-old Ethan Gilman. On January 29th, 2013, Ethan boarded the school bus to return home. Ethan had Asperger syndrome and had a strong bond with Charles Poland, the bus driver beloved by all the students he worked with. Ethan typically sat close to Charles, seeing him as a caring and kind figure. But the ride home soon took a turn for the worse. At 3.30 that afternoon, Jimmy Lee Dykes flagged down and boarded the school bus, then pulled out a gun and demanded Charles hand over two well-mannered children. Charles, protective of his students, refused. Dykes gave him one more chance to comply and then shot Charles Poland five times, killing him in front of the 21 children on the bus that day. Dykes then picked up Ethan himself, taking him to an underground bunker on his property. That began a seven-day nightmare for law enforcement, determined to free Ethan from his menacing hostage-taker. Today, I'm joined by the one man who arguably knows the case best. Kyle Voewinkle is a retired FBI Special Agent who served on both the hostage rescue team and the crisis negotiation unit. Alongside members in both divisions, as well as a team of local and state law enforcement officials. Kyle was central to the tremendous effort and team that never gave up. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much, Emily. Uh, I'm truly humbled by your words. Uh, I was able and fortunate to serve uh, with two heroes in in two different national level assets, uh, the hostage rescue team, as well as the crisis negotiation unit. So I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: And the reason that you're here today, we are going to discuss at length what happened in Alabama in Midland City on January 29th, 2013. Can you tell us that story?
2: Yes, it started out with a uh, rural school bus driver, a man named Charles Poland, who drove his route each and every day up and down a dirt road, and he would turn off the dirt road, drive up, drop the kids off would have to U-turn and then drive back down the road. And there was a man that lived along that road who actually had a diabolical plan, a determined individual by the name of Jim Dykes, who cultivated a relationship with that bus driver. And he actually cleared brush out of that road in order to make it easier for Mr. Poland to turn around. And Mr. Poland recognized that Mr. Dykes had done that. So out of the kindness of his heart, Mr. Poland left, dozen eggs and some, some of his wife's homemade jelly and little note for Mr. Dykes. He was trying to befriend Mr. Dykes. Again, reaching back out to him and example of the reciprocity principle, uh, which we study in, in CNU. And unfortunately, the next day, Mr. Dykes comes to the school bus and Mr. Poland stops the bus and opens the door for one last time. Mr. Dykes steps on board he hands mr poland a note demanding two well-mannered children be handed over to mr dykes it's a harrowing chilling video of the actual hostage shaking and i I do warn your viewers when they watch it it's quite graphic and disturbing you hear foul language you'll hear children screaming so just skip past it that two or three minutes if you don't want to witness that because even now as I've seen it a hundred times plus, it, it still gets to me. Kyle,
1: you provided us the audio from inside the school bus in that terrifying moment when Dykes boarded the bus and made his demand on Charles Poland. We'll play that for you now. Listeners, this is incredibly graphic and disturbing.
0: Don't! I can't. Can. You got to. It's the only way. There will not be harm. You won't be harmed. It's my responsibility. I can't help that. Kids a, I can't help that. I can't turn them over to somebody else. The, the rules that go, can't, we can't help it. It don't matter. It's got to go. Come on. Come on. He, no. He's scared. Uh-huh. He's scared. Uh-huh. You will not be harmed, son. You will not be harmed, son. I'm sorry, I cannot. I'm going to I'm gonna have to shoot now. Come on. I don't have any time. The goddamn law's coming. Come on. Don't. don't. can't do it. Don't. Can't. Ah. Oh All right, God. now do it. Do it. No, No! Come on. Come on. Come, on. Come, on. Come here. Come here, Come, here. Come, here. Come
1: here. That's so hard to listen to, Kyle. Those were the screams of 21 children on that bus, and we heard what was the fatal shooting of their brave driver, Charles Poland, who refused to surrender any of the kids to Jimmy Dykes, and he died protecting those children. Walk us through what happened when Dykes boarded the bus. So,
2: Mr. Poland opens the door, thinking that you know, Mr. Dykes, the person he reached out to, was going to be friendly. Actually, Mr. Dykes had a bag of broccoli and carrots, uh, which was kind of a fake. Uh, offer to Mr. Poland and he steps on board, hands him that note and then proceeds to demand that Mr. Poland pick out two children for him. Uh, He leaves the note there, Mr. Poland really doesn't have time to read the note and it's just, it's tragic and and moving at the same time as you witness the heroism of uh, Mr. Poland, he's confronted with a pistol, right? Mr. Dykes is holding a pistol, aiming it a few feet from Mr. Poland And he heroically refuses. He defiantly says, I will not hand over children on my bus. They are my responsibility. So Mr. Poland literally gave his life to protect his flock, to protect those children, which he viewed as his his own. And unfortunately, Mr. Dykes shoots Mr. Poland five times. And Mr. Poland expires there in the bus in front of all the children and then starts issuing demands, barking at the children to come forward come forward and actually the first 911 call comes from the back of the bus a 15 year old named trey watts calmly calls 911 and first notifies them there's a man on the bus with a gun so that's the initial notification to law enforcement to respond to that scene and he tells them, yes they just he just shot our bus driver and took a kid off a the bus there's actually a recording of the 911 call Uh, from Trey Watts, which is also remarkable, how calm and cool that 15-year-old was in the face of this crisis. And Mr. Dykes, none of the kids responded to his demands. I think the kids probably kind of followed Mr. Poland's heroic defiant stance, and they did not listen to Mr. Dykes. So Mr. Dykes just reached forward, or stepped forward to the first child, the nearest child to Mr. Poland was Ethan Gilman, who is seated right behind Mr. Poland. He reaches, grabs him, puts him over his shoulder, then takes Ethan off the bus about 100 feet to his underground bunker, which he had created, hand-fabricated over the past year, uh, digging out this six-by-eight-foot-by-12-foot straight drop of an underground lair, which where he was going to keep his, initially, two children. He wanted two children off the bus. uh, He only got one, and then he took Ethan down this bunker, left him down there, and Dykes climbs up this ladder. It's a very steep, you know, 12 feet up ladder. He himself picks up the phone, or excuse me, uses his cell phone. Mr. Dykes calls 911 himself and reports that he shot and killed the bus driver. He didn't want to do it, but Mr. Poland made him, uh, which is fascinating, the behavior, right? We analyze behavior as crisis negotiators. As we look at Dykes' behavior, his plan was for Dykes to get two children off the bus that Mr. Polin would select, right? So he gave victim selection to the bus driver because he didn't want to be responsible for that. And same thing here on the telephone call to 911, he blames Mr. Poland for him having to shoot him, saying, I didn't want to shoot him, but Mr. Poland made me do it. So just interesting, again, as we're looking at the mind of this determined diabolical individual, he will not accept responsibility, kind of views himself as a victim and, Interesting enough, our behavioral analysis unit, they had personnel on scene, and they termed Mr. Dykes an injustice collector, that he had collected all these grievances throughout his life, and now he was gonna air them and tell us a story. And that was also what he said in the letter, I want two children to force the powers that be to listen, because he wanted to tell his fantastical story and again, vent all his grievances and that would change the world in his mind. So he was justified in his mind for doing what he was doing, taking a child, an innocent five-year-old off a bus. So he calls 911. Actually, the first call gets interrupted. He dials back. He wants to make sure 911 receives his information and he directs law enforcement to respond and come to a white tube, which is a white speaking tube, which is about 170 feet away from the bunker. And that's where he instructed them to communicate with him, he created this communications device.
1: We have that audio as well, Kyle. Thanks to you for sharing it with us. We'll take a moment to play that, listeners. This is graphic and disturbing.
0: Copy, medi 5. 911, where's your emergency? Medic 1. 911. I'm sorry. 502. Okay. This is Jim Dyson, at 1539 private road. Two, a, you're screaming. We can't understand you. I'm at 1539 private road. Yes. Private. Okay. Yes, sir. What's going on? Uh, I have a hostage. I got back on the phone. I suspect on the phone. It, uh, the he did not do, he he do what I need. to do. Traffic. Sir, what, what's wrong? What's going on? I have a, just come to, come to lot 256 at the front gate. You will find a white post there that you can talk through on, a, you can talk through. I'm in an underground bunker. You're in an underground bunker? Okay, yeah. sir, you have a child with you? Yes. Okay, what's your name, sir? Jim Dykes, uh, Okay, sir, where are you, what's your address? Uh, 256, Huddle Road 1539. I'm simulcasting. Uh, okay. Four,
1: sir. So that was Jim Dykes there on his call to 911. It was not the first connection, the first contact with law enforcement. As you said earlier, the 15 year old Trey Watts on board the bus was the first to make contact with 911. And now here's Jimmy Dykes calling them himself. Walk us through what that meant for you in your analysis of his mental state. Of his level of preparation, of the desperation uh, that you might be encountering?
2: Well, it's truly unique in a uh, law enforcement crisis for an individual to summon 911 and, and call police upon himself. Uh, what it showed to us is that he needed law enforcement. He needed us to provide him with his mind, or what he wanted was a hearing. He wanted the media to be there to broadcast his message. So he was gonna force law enforcement through the kidnapping of this child, and Ethan was his bartering chip. Ethan was his poker chip that he knew would force law enforcement to respond and therefore cave to his demands to bring the media there to listen to him tell his story. So on the one hand, it's, it's very good in the fact that the subject wants something from law enforcement and needs something from law enforcement. So that really empowers law enforcement at least initially in our response, knowing that the subject wants us there, needs us there, says he has a story to tell, which as negotiators, that's perfect. The subject wants to talk to us, that's what we do. We listen, we gain intelligence, we try to build rapport, demonstrate empathy, use the negotiator tools to begin a conversation with the subject to you know, dive deeper into the issues and hopefully try to peacefully resolve it. Uh, although in this case, he was, determined and he made his own decisions about the outcome. but we were initially examining his behavior we thought it was a positive sign right that he had this story to tell and we thought maybe we could possibly peacefully resolve it although it started out horrible right with the murder of a you know innocent bus driver but then you know Mr. Dykes, I think never could have imagined the law enforcement you know tsunami, uh, the response of our nation's you know finest in the FBI and DOJ that came when he called us. So he, I don't think could have predicted the crushing pressure of the FBI's Critical Incident Response Group, CERG, which is really like a juggernaut of every crisis response entity and asset in the FBI that was made to respond to incidents like this. So that night is really when CERG started spinning up to respond to this incident.
1: So Kyle, what did it mean for your analysis then That Dykes had approached and initiated the situation with a demand that off the bat was not met. So he came on the bus with a letter saying, demanding that he wanted two kids handed to him. Instead, he engaged in a murder and then he physically picked up one child. He demanded that he wanted two well-mannered kids. From the beginning, his efforts were being thwarted. How did you find that impacted the response of all of the agencies, all of law enforcement and your analysis?
2: So we looked at Dykes, and he, he created this plan in his mind and in his mind, there is only one route or one way that the plan would achieve success. And it what happens is he reaches an obstacle with Mr. Poland, right? He wanted Poland to pick those two children for him. That was Dykes's plan. And then he met that obstacle, the heroic Mr. Poland, who would not go along with his plan. So what did he do? He removed that obstacle. Mm-hmm. He used lethal force to kill an, an impediment to his plan. So we see that he, or we assess him as also BAU described him as a promise keeper. He told Mr. Poland, I will shoot you if you do not follow and go through with my plan and select those children. And what did Dykes do? He followed through with what he said. He said he was going to kill Mr. Poland and he did. So we had to take everything then very seriously, each threat and each ultimatum or edict from Mr. Dykes, because he had demonstrated his behavior, right? We analyzed behavior and past actions are usually the best predictor of future behavior. And he followed through, he was a promise keeper to his threat of violence to kill Mr. Poland. So that meant we had to believe everything he told us moving forward.
1: Tell us more about Ethan.
2: Uh, Ethan as painful as this is to say, uh, was almost the perfect victim because he had a uh, form of Asperger's. he had a, a slight developmental uh, disorder and that's actually one of the reasons he sat so close to Mr. Poland. Mm-hmm. They had a close bond and he liked to be there near Mr. Poland. Again, he was his you know almost caretaker on that bus. he was his you know guardian angel so to speak, to look after Ethan. And Ethan was had a really tough home situation. He was in and out of foster care. Uh, Growing up, uh, father's totally out of the picture. And so he didn't have, you know, many great, you know, role models in his life. And Mr. Poland was one of those people that that he looked up to. And Ethan, because of his Asperger's, required medication three times a day. So here we have the second uh, impediment to Mr. Dykes' plan. Because in his letter, he asked Mr. Poland to pick two well-mannered, healthy children for him to take. And Ethan, right, had that Asperger's, so he needed medication. So he, was, he required three times a day pills in order to help him manage that Asperger's, or else Ethan would get unruly. So right off the bat, law enforcement is quite concerned, right, for Ethan's behavior. We don't want Ethan to become unruly inside the bunker. We don't want him to rile up Mr. Dykes. We don't want Mr. Dykes to take out any aggravation on Ethan, because now Ethan right is not what he wanted according to his plan. Ethan was not a healthy child, and now he's got that second you know, deviation from his plan. He has a, a child that needs medication three times a day. So it definitely altered the dynamics of, as we assess the behavior, of. and we're so worried how Dykes was going to treat Ethan, and we had to get medication in there. So the first responders, uh, Bill Rafferty, was the first negotiator from the Houston County Sheriff's Department who spoke to Dykes, and he told him On that very first conversation, hey, Ethan needs medication. We're gonna have to somehow provide medication to Ethan.
1: And so, how is that then the perfect victim as it relates to how it benefits law enforcement?
2: Uh, Great question. Because of that medication requirement three times a day, as we look at Mr. Dykes's property, he very intelligently crafted his bunker, right? Very determined. He's he's an older gentleman, 65, but very strong, very wiry, very independent and determined. And he built that bunker with cinder block construction, a a very heavy hatch, very heavy garage door springs. He had winch cables inside to secure that hatch. He wanted nobody coming inside his bunker. That hatch then also was on top, right, about 200 pounds, very heavy. And then he created that communications system with a white PVC tube. So law enforcement would be 170 feet away, right? He didn't want anyone coming in that like security ring that he had created. And now though, because of Ethan requiring the medication, right, we had to go persuade Dykes the negotiators to allow us to come deliver medication to Ethan three times a day. So it enabled enabled us to have three times a day, additional contact with the subject, additional target analysis of the bunker, right? So instead of being 170 feet away for seven days, we were up with that bunker hatch lid three times a day. And we're able to, again, do some clever investigative techniques, we're able to engage face to face, well, not really face to face, but within hearing shot of each other. Whereas normally, it was just on the phone when we communicate with Dikes and negotiate with them. But now we're within, you know, voice communication with them. So Ethan's condition enabled us to have extra engagement with dikes, and again, that extra examination of the surrounding areas and the target itself for tactical to plan emergency and deliberate assault options.
1: We'll be right back with more of this story. So you've mentioned the collaboration between these agencies, or, or at least named the multitude of agencies that responded that first night. And so setting the scene a little bit here. So we've got what you, you arrive to the scene and, and encounter a very complex bunker that this man has created. Undoubtedly, it took him an extensive amount of time with a security perimeter, the latter. He had an elaborate plan developed to... At that point, take two children hassage. He had Ethan, which now you're assessing has special needs, requires medication three times a day. Um, it includes what you just said. So the need to communicate or have contact with dikes at least three times a day. And you've also had the murder in front of 21 children of the bus driver. So walk us through that global initial assessment. As you get on scene with all of these different federal and local and state agencies and you encounter that situation, what does that all lead to in your initial analysis?
2: Well, we initially it was day one when we back at CERG headquarters in, in Stafford, Virginia, when we first got word of the murder and we first saw the letter. So actually, day one, we're beginning our analysis of dykes and we start preparing for the contingency deployment. All right, the hostage rescue team and the crisis negotiation unit uh, only do full team deployments on the FBI director's orders, right, which has to be also requested usually by the special agent in charge, the SAC of the respective field office. In this case, in Mobile, Alabama was SAC Steve Richardson, and he actually called and requested HRT and CNU to deploy, and the director authorized that on the day two in the morning. So we flew out. On the fbi aircraft and arrived and it was a massive law enforcement response already just on day two hundreds of law enforcement officers from houston county from dale county sheriff's office the alabama bureau investigation and multiple fbi field offices The actually atlanta negotiation team was the first ones from outside mobile to arrive that night one and they did a fantastic job they actually persuaded dykes to accept a throw phone, which is a communication device, which is hardwired. So the subject can talk to law enforcement and only law enforcement 24 seven. He can just pick up pick up that phone because what we found out night one is that some technically trained agents, when the FBI specialty agents were examining that speaking tube and they were getting a close look at it and they tried to put a camera down and there's some obstruction. So they called up a special agent bomb technician, an SABT who came up and he took an X-ray of that speaking tube right this is where dykes had requested law enforcement talk to him at the speaking tube and they x-rayed night one and lo and behold there's an improvised explosive device mm. inside that speaking tube oh. so as we analyze the risks like they're they're off the chart at this point because right not only has he killed mr poland he's taken an innocent five-year-old hostage and now he has an offensive bomb in this speaking tube where he called law enforcement so now we're thinking, is this all part of a plan just to kill the negotiators or kill more law enforcement by that bomb outside? So that was really the final straw, not that we needed any more. I should say the Bureau didn't need any more, but that was the final straw to deploy HRT and CNU and the rest of that SERG juggernaut, as I described. So we all arrived day two. And then it was just really a fantastic team of teams. It was a fantastic mesh of individuals because Everyone was singularly focused on the goal of getting Ethan out alive.
1: So as you set this scene, a highly organized, responsive team made up of, it sounds like, hundreds of individuals that are a par- part of these collective, again, local, state, federal agencies. But it's one person you're communicating with, and that's Jimmy Dykes, who's very entrenched in that community. So talk to us about the delicacy of or the the fine uh, dressing needed between these agencies and who exactly was the voice that Jimmy was listening to and or communicating with and why?
2: So day one, it was Bill Rafferty. He was at Houston County Sheriff's Deputy and because he was the first responder and he actually he was an FBI trained negotiator uh, all over the country. We hold negotiation courses and we actually have a two week class back at Quantico as well. So he was a trained FBI negotiator. So what that does, again, with his nationwide training is it put all puts all the negotiators, at least, on the same terminology, the same playing field, the same kind of principles. So it's just like in a crisis. It's exactly what it's for. We can all kind of mesh together. So here you're going to listen to, uh, on day two, this is an FBI negotiator communicating with Dykes through that throw phone. And you can just hear Mr. Dykes' kind of temperament, his tone and demeanor. And, and you, you tell me your assessment, Emily, whether you feel like this is two-way communication mm-hmm. or not.
0: I went into business with my brother-in-law. I helped him build a rig, a liquid asphalt rig. We went down to Panama City. We was making damn good money. My first chance in life of getting somewhere in life, and and I tried. And he came up with a formula for the mix. The formula was fine. We was making big money. We did the Ebro dog track for fifty thousand dollars. But then our salesman, a drunk, alcoholic salesman, cheated us out of ten thousand dollars that deal. And then on top of that, John, my brother-in-law, he tried. He started. Half-ass in the mix. When you come up with a formula, you do not change the formula. Yeah. And he did, and he said, "Oh, I said, John, we got to stick with the formula. Now we got to have everything right." Oh, it's okay. I got. It. I don't know what I'm doing. And so we ended up. We lost the contract on a McDonald's down there. The last job I worked with, and it just messed up terrible. They sued him. Well, the business shut down. I had to go back to work driving a truck. And then after I warned him, to, I said, "That is going to screw us, John. He's no good drunk. He's going to screw us over." He said, well, No, I got him out of control. Well, and, uh, but but you see, it, it, it all went down, just like I said. I yeah. warned him, and it, and, it, and it happened, just like I said. Well, he got I, betrayed, I, yeah. I had-
1: okay, I am not a behavioral analyst, Kyle, but the, what I heard no. is um, that he was talking at, definitely not talking with, and right. that he perceived himself as a victim, a woe is me, or at least that that was a woe is me tale.
2: Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not trying to put you on the spot there. Uh, uh, I've heard that again a hundred times and, and I still can't make sense of what Dykes is saying. Uh, yeah, he, he's just rambling, right? He's, he's going on. And the negotiator actually does a very good job. He uses like, minimal encouragers, mm-hmm. you know, go on, uh-huh. So the negotiator doesn't interrupt. He's allowing Dykes to vent and tell his story, right? This is what Dykes wanted to do. And he actually tries an emotional label there at the end. Sounds like he'd been betrayed. Uh, but really, it's it's just one-way communication. It is just Dykes speaking directly to that FBI negotiator. There, there's no real connection or bond there. Uh, and actually, interesting tidbit, you know, we were giving daily updates to the uh, FBI director, and he asked, you know, how are things going down there uh, on one of the updates? So sir, so pretty good. We had two calls. And he said, two calls? We've got, you know, 100-plus FBI down there, 25 negotiators. What's going on? Uh, Sir, each call was four hours long.
1: Oh, my gosh. Four hours of that, of that rambling, the one-sided rambling.
2: Yeah, how would you, I, I, it was painful. So, yeah, imagine trying to listen to that. And have a conversation. Can I ask you? Four hours I, long. I, I
1: can't imagine, especially when the stakes are so high. That's the thing. I mean, there, he had a an, a boy with him. So I can't imagine um, having to endure that while understanding every second ticking by is so precious for Ethan's life and, um, and keeping him on his medication. So given that rambling, how soon was it articulated to you the actual demands that Dykes had? So we, we heard the demands in the beginning, right? He wants his kids, then he takes one, and then he calls 911. But how, how soon did law enforcement appreciate exactly what Dykes was truly demanding, and what was
2: it? Uh, it was on day two, at least when I uh, was there, and I was listening to every single minute. Uh, that was my first task, actually, was to stay up through the night and listen to every one of the calls uh, from day one to assess Dykes, and again, to get a picture of that, uh, a picture of his mental state and what he wanted. And what he wanted was a young female reporter, attractive female reporter to come down in his bunker. And only then when the female reporter was inside his bunker, would he release Ethan, right? He There was no deviation from his plan. The reporter would enter the bunker then and only then would he release Ethan to come out. And then he would talk for two or three days to the reporter, tell his fantastical story and air all his grievances. Again, how he was a victim and got a you know, ticket in Indiana for his truck being overweight, but he was mad because in Michigan, the truck would not have been overweight. And he has a detailed suicide plan. Once he tells the story, which again will take two or three days, he's gonna put a plastic bag over his head. It has a small plastic tube, which is then connected to a helium tank. He's gonna open the helium tank to let the gas come in, which will displace the oxygen in his lungs, and he will pass away and die. And then the female reporter has the wonderful task She's shackled, by the way, in his plan, and she would have to find a file and file her shackles off, and then she would be able to emerge from the bunker alive.
1: And so when law enforcement is faced with a demand of that nature, that includes a suicide and bringing in another life to a hostage situation, what is the first response?
2: Well, the first response, I remember my partner grabbed me because, again, it's very— challenging during a crisis, because you're always in react mode, right? You're reacting to the subject, and you have to detach yourself from the crisis and literally analyze and assess. Very hard to do. My partner was exceptional at it, and I remember he pulled me aside on day three and said, we have to escape this kind of circus. Let's you and I talk. And he he said, at the end of the day, you know, we're talking, is Dykes ever going to get what he wants? And we both said, Mm -hmm. no. Law enforcement is not going to introduce a new victim into that crisis. We just don't do it. So at the end of the day, we project this road of however many days or weeks we can negotiate for months. However, right at the very end, we are not gonna be able to fulfill Dykes's demand for a child. So we realized kind of at day three, we would not again satisfy his demand. So in the interim, we're still gonna talk to him. We're gonna provide him, uh, you know, listening so that we can kind of protect and shield Ethan so he can vent towards the negotiators and really we're gonna stall for tactical and stall for any other possible ideas or solutions because we know at the end of the day we can't give him what he wants so it really was that kind of the end of day three we realized or at least as we're talking that this is probably not going to end well it's probably going to have to be a tactical resolution even though we don't want that right we'd rather have a peaceful resolution getting ethan out of there and dykes alive but he Again, assessing behavior is so determined, sees no alternatives to his plan. It's a report in the bunker, and only then Ethan comes out. Like He would not see any other alternatives. We had one negotiator very non-confidentially say at the end of the day, hey, Jim, what can we do about getting Ethan out of the bunker? And Dykes became enraged, not enraged. He just became upset. And Dykes said, I don't want to ever talk to you again. You're fired. <sighs> and actually, going back to your previous question, after we tried two FBI negotiators, we realized that Bill Rafferty, again, was a local. He had that kind of Southern drawl and twang, and he knew the area, and he knew the same people as Dykes in the community. So we, again, collectively decided, let's put Bill Rafferty back on that primary phone line with Dykes. So again, a perfect example of the FBI is there with hundreds of people, but we are not going to force ourselves into you know that primary communication if it's not the best solution. The best solution was putting Rafferty back on there because he had connected and bonded a little bit with Dyke. So the whole twenty-five person team then was there supporting Bill Rafferty, the local negotiator.
1: So what I'm hearing is that law enforcement had sort of two options: one being negotiation, the successful surrender. Of Dykes on his own, the successful g- returning of Ethan safely, and he surrenders. And the other option, when you say tactical, means that the good guys go in there and they get Ethan out. And that's because in his demands, you ascertain it included suicide. And because he was a promise keeper, because he demonstrated that he removes obstacles, um, even if it requires murder, you take him at his word. And so instead of expecting a potential successful resolution from negotiation, you guys know all signs are then now pointing toward a tactical resolution. Is that a correct, a simple summation of the situation at that point,
2: Kyle? Yes and no, right? Because we still, even though we assess it, it's likely to end with a homicide, suicide, or a violent Mm -hmm. confrontation, right? We assess that's most likely going to happen. We still are, so we are, tactical is preparing for a potential tactical resolution. However, we are still trying, right, the negotiation route. And that's a good point. It's a parallel approach in all crises, right? We would always prefer law enforcement a peaceful resolution, which is obviously a negotiated route, no confrontations, and everyone walks out and emerges alive. However, we have to have that parallel plan of the tactical resolution if negotiations, again, negotiations don't fail if the subject chooses not to, you know, the subject makes a choice here in every case, and hopefully they choose to peacefully surrender or peacefully emerge. But we proceeded in Dothan down both tracks of negotiation and tactical resolution. And and that's where I kind of came in, uh, especially towards the end, being a former tactical uh, operator on HRT and being a negotiator, I was able to craft that parallel approach plan uh, to help give us both options, right? of a negotiated resolution if Dykes chose and was willing to go that way or it opened a window for tactical resolution if we were forced to.
1: We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Before we get into exactly what that plan was that you designed and how uniquely suited you were to be the person that designed this program or this plan, um, quick question, as again, we are all appreciating the scene as you've been laying it out. Was there at any point concern or evidence of abuse or sexual assault or um, a a sexual uh, purpose articulated by Dykes either toward Ethan or that reporter? Was there anything in that realm? And if not, how were you reassured for his safety as all this time was going by? A
2: terrific question. We were very concerned initially. Was he taking these children just for his sexual gratification. Like what was he gonna do to these two children? So first off, the only thing we had, right, initially day one to assess was the letter. So literally me and my partner went word by word through the letter and he instructs Mr. Poland to give him two children so he can tell his story. Nowhere in there does he talk about his desires or his needs you know, to gratify himself with these children. So at least from the letter, the initial analysis, ours, Vince and mine was, it's a horrible situation, right? The child's kidnapped, but it does not appear initially that he's doing it for his own gratification, right? Quite the contrary. He says in there, he wants the children to force us, the powers that be, to listen to him and give him the female reporter, right? If, if the children were the object of his desire, then he wouldn't trade them out, right? He would Mm -hmm. keep them and use and abuse them. So we're getting into like true hostage analysis situations. And I'll just give you a comparison, like a husband comes home and catches his wife cheating and he holds his wife hostage there against her will. Right. It's he has what he wants. The object of his venom and hatred is the you know cheating spouse. So he doesn't need anything from law enforcement. He's taking his anger and aggression on his emotional person right there. Right. The one who caused mm-hmm. him this pain. So that's totally different from Dykes. Dykes gave the victim selection to the bus driver. So Dykes had no individual say in who was gonna be the victim, right? And he, he has no emotional attachment to Ethan. So we viewed that as a true hostage situation, meaning that he didn't have any personal, again, interest or attachment to the children. They were just bartering chips for him to use to exchange for the female reporter. So that was kind of the first analysis that we thought they were safe. But then the second kind of, this is like the game changer is the, FBI was able to insert some covert collection devices. So we were able to have audio and video into the crisis site because beforehand there was just tremendous pressure. Mm-hmm. Think about it. A child in a bunker, what's going on in there? Is he being abused, beaten, you know, horrible things happening to Ethan? But because of this covert collection, now we had 24-7, and this is on day two when we We're able to get it all in there. I'll just say that because I'm not going to reveal any sensitive mm-hmm. techniques. But now we could see and hear exactly how Ethan is being treated.
0: You want uh, citrus blend or fresh scent? The
2: agreement? So think about that for a moment. Dykes is asking the child, do you want citrus blend or fresh scent? So he's given Ethan choices, right? And it also shows how planned out Dykes had you know, food and water and children's items for weeks and weeks and weeks. But we assess that behavior as grandfather. Right. I was going to say
1: it sounded, right, he's attending. it sounded, um, I, I hate using this word in this context. It sounded kind. He almost sounded deferential to Ethan, like, hey, do, do you want this or this? Very, very uh, submissive to the child's desires in that moment. So that was a, a quite revealing moment there.
2: Yeah, you're 100% accurate. We, again, termed it as grandfatherly, Mm -hmm. which is kind of bizarre, right? To describe a hostage taker as grandfatherly, but we're providing advice and assessment to decision makers. And that was the term we used. So yeah, we were all kind of shocked observing and hearing that behavior, but it was very Mm -hmm. comforting at least to know that Ethan is not being abused because if Ethan was being abused, right? We would have to send in tactical, we'd have to send in the boys Right. right away, right? Uh, If we have a serious threat of bodily injury or physical harm, that would meet the threshold to send in tactical right away. So what that covert collection allowed us to do, right, is assess the behavior and see, hey, Ethan is okay. Again, he's a horrible, like, long-term situation. He can't stay in the bunker, but we don't have to immediately send in tactical now, you know, on a hasty emergency assault rescue plan, right, until we've developed really and refined some great, or a good course of action, which lowers risk. And so
1: pausing for a moment in this seven-day-long hostage situation, you were not only speaking to Jimmy Dykes, listening to his tapes, boots on ground there in Alabama, but you were also speaking directly to the director of the FBI. You were the conduit between the very top and the hostage taker, the very epicenter of the crisis itself there in Midland City, Alabama. While that was happening and you were the touch point of that entire constellation, what was going on with the media?
2: I also just want to say it was, it was both my partner and I, Vince. We were both the uh, the, the kind of conduits because we were a great team and partnership and we were both on the calls. So we'd have daily calls with the director and we'd brief them and describe the negotiation efforts. And then, yeah, I was the only one. I was going up to that bunker lid three times a day in those conversations when we would do the mm-hmm. medicine deliveries. So, yeah, I I was, again, in the tactical realm or the tactical world going up, accompanying them for the deliveries and then back in that command realm as well, briefing the FBI director, you know, on our efforts. So the media played an unfortunate role on, I think it was day four. The neighbor was interviewed, Rhonda Wilbur, by local media.
1: Actually joined with Rhonda Wilbur, who is a neighbor. Um, So, Rhonda, what can you actually tell us about?
2: Uh,
0: my source of interest for a long time because he has been like a time bomb waiting
1: to go off. So that hit the airwaves day four, you said. I can't imagine the national pandemonium then of learning that a, quote, time bomb has a five-year-old child in a bunker h- held
2: hostage. Yeah, so Dykes actually had a television set in that six-by-eight-foot mm. bunker, and he wasn't fixated on his coverage Although he did watch that news clip of the interview with the neighbor, and he had killed one of her dogs, which is strayed onto mm-hmm. his property. And of course, in Dykes' mind, he's justified in you know guarding his land, and he said he had warned the neighbor. And then he sees that and he tells the negotiator, I should have killed her other effing dog too, and called her, you know, that rhymes with witch. I won't say the word. So Dykes is quite upset and irritated by seeing him portrayed as the villain, you know, on the national media. So uh, again, seeing you, my partner had a great idea. We sat down with our national media office with the behavioral analysis rep and the sheriff and the SAC, and he had the idea, hey, let's try to send a positive message to Dykes, right? Dykes got riled up. The goal of negotiators is to lower emotions, keep things on a stable level. People are more logical, right? when their emotions are lowered. But now Dykes was getting up, was emotionally reacting to that neighbor being interviewed, calling him that ticking time bomb. So the sheriff, to his credit, listened to our suggestion and he went on national TV and thanked the murderer.
0: He's also allowed us to provide coloring books, um, medication, toys. I wanna thank him
2: for taking care of our child. Mm. That's, That's very important.
1: I just got chills.
2: Yeah. I think I've got to that is that's an elected official going on national TV. And this is intentional, right? We knew Jim Dykes had an anti-government grudge, right? So the Bureau stayed very intentionally behind the scenes. We put the sheriff front and center and engaged with the media because we knew Dykes would you know be watching it. So if he, of any people that Dykes respected, we thought the most would be the local sheriff, which was true. So that's why we had the sheriff deliver the message. And what a, what a, this courageous thing for the sheriff to do to go on and, and say that. So again, gutsy Sheriff Wall Olson just did a fantastic job and there shows that he put, you know, that Ethan, as everyone there did, right? Put the goal of saving Ethan above everything else, personal career, uh, no concern, obviously, for future election efforts, because no one really understood what he was doing until now, of course years later. Right, because
1: so many of you, while while serving, are unable to share exactly the details. We only learn about it after you've retired, as we're doing now. So, Kyle, in the, the seven-day hostage situation, when was the beginning of the end?
2: Uh, it was starting day five, because really day two to th- four, things were kind of copacetic in the bunker. He was you know, somewhat calm and stable. He reacted to the media messages, but we, you know, kept him at a stable level. But day five, It all goes off the rails. And actually it was an opportunity. Uh, Each time we're going up to the bunker lid and on the phone calls with Dykes, law enforcement through the negotiators are trying to build rapport with Dykes, right? We want to be able to influence him to peacefully surrender. So on day five, think about this. Dykes on the phone, I hear him say to Bill, hey, I can help you guys. One of those springs came off on the hatch on his bunker lid. So, I think I sent you a picture. You can see there's two like uh, garage yeah. door springs and one to come off in a storm. So, Dykes was offering to help law enforcement. He said, I will come up underneath the hatch lid, I will lift it up so you guys can then bring that spring down and connect it. We had hundreds of law enforcement there. We could have got a crane, you know, we could have had <laughs> any number of ways to attach that spring. But because of negotiators building that rapport, engaged them in conversation showing empathy, again, not judging him, not trying to be too confrontational with him. He offers to help us. So on day five, you know, I briefed the HRT commander, say, hey, we may, have, we may have an opportunity here, right? If Ethan is safely away, and if Dykes' hands are occupied by lifting up on the bunker hatch lid, right? That means he doesn't have a gun in his hand, he can't initiate the ID, and maybe, you know, it's a window for tactical to possibly resolve it. So we go up on that day five, our normal like as a routine every time we would knock on the hatch lid hey jim it's us again we had a set set of communications we wanted regular uh we wanted him to be accustomed to our same routine each and every time so we do that and he says okay because he would have to loosen the cable winches on the bottom of that hatch lid were three eye bolts which had like bicycle locks going 12 feet down to a little winch system so not only is it super heavy 200 pounds he has those three winch cables going down. So he would have to loosen that up each and every time, just, just two or three inches for us to lift up and drop in the medicine delivery, right? The Medicine was just like an envelope. Okay. We'd slide that in. So we deliver the medicine and then we say, okay, let's attach the garage door spring now. Jim, can you come up? So he comes up and he, he lifts up the hatch lid. I can see his hair. I'm like just two feet away.
1: Are are you all on your stomachs then with the no. hatch? Or are you, are you standing looking down or what's what's the vantage point like for for all the law enforcement around?
2: Great question. So the front of that bunker has cinder block in front of it and it's raised up. So most law enforcement the operators mm-hmm. were on their bellies, right? Uh, I think I was just on my knees next to it and I saw his his hair and then, you know, the idea was hopefully if the operator could see that Ethan was not there, and it was definitely Dykes, and it's a zero-fail shot, right? That operator cannot shoot unless he knows Dykes is there and Ethan is not there, right? So unfortunately, as Dykes lifts it up, the sunlight glints off just the top, top of the metal barrel, and Dykes sees that there's a gun barrel, you know, just two feet away. He drops the hatched lid, says, you mother effers. You just tried to kill me. I was trying to help you, all right? So five days of rapport building, of active listening, of us you know, de- developing a relationship with Dykes is all down the tube in an instant. And again, it's not the operator's fault. He, he can't take that shot unless it's a 100% for sure that Ethan wasn't there. And Dykes just got a lucky glimpse you know, of the gun barrel. He, he becomes enraged. This is the beginning of the end. He starts yelling at us and then we, actually go off you know pull the team off we got to get out of there because dykes is just spiraling spiraling further out of control uh rafferty with vince calls in tries to make an excuse hey that was just a new guy at the hole he didn't know what he was doing he'll he'll never come back up there again but really dykes knows he got a reality check we were trying to kill him we were trying to end the resolution and we had kind of betrayed his trust right we had not Again, he was trying to help us so we tried to kill him so that night he's like fidgeting he's laying in bed we can see him twiddling his thumbs and on day six the worst part is now he's beginning to objectify ethan he's distancing himself before right he tended to ethan's needs as you said you could see that grandfatherly now we see him turn his back on ethan he's ignoring ethan ethan's having a tantrum he doesn't tend to his needs at all so now the risk factors are just increasing, and he issues an ultimatum, a deadline. On day six, he says, by 5.30 p.m. tomorrow, a determination will be be made and the survivors will be held accountable. Right, if there's survivors, that means that there are casualties. And so we have to take Dykes at his word, right? He also has inside, there's a second IED that we find, second improvised explosive device, and we see him rehearse that initiation by lining up the barrel uh, next to a PVC pipe, so now we have two IEDs, we have another handgun inside the helium tank. All right, there's just a massive number of lethal objects inside the bunker, and now we have we have to resolve this or have to have a plan to somehow meet Dykes' needs or, or do something by 30 p.m. tomorrow. But that's how it all it really day six is when it. Comes when to a
1: head. Dykes, as you said, you know, reacted and flew off the handle. You see him rehearsing now this this use of weapon and all of that. Um, how much of that did he know you were hearing? Meaning, um, short of the ultimatum that he issued you about the survivors, was everything else in the privacy of that bunker that you captured on your clandestine audio and video? Or did he call you on the throwaway phone and become hysterical and yell how, how much of that did he know that he was communicating to you that he felt betrayed
2: uh great question so he did call us and we spoke with him and there is an audio clip uh that you can hear him and you can see his emotional level he's ramped up and so we could assess it off the phone call and then we also could assess it during that and- uh, covert collection so if you want to play that audio now
0: and it's going to be a determination as to whether or not just exactly what the hell is going to take place. Somebody above that sorry son of a bitch out there, just like I said yesterday, that sorry son of a bitch in the authority above you people. If that sorry son of a bitch doesn't have the man enough to talk to me and treat me and, and, and respond to me and ask some <laughs> questions for me and give me some information, then by God, it's his responsibility to outcome and you just go ahead and send some mother down that <laughs> funnel up there to their death and you're. <laughs> chicken, you're scared. You know, damn well, I'm smarter than most of you people. You know, damn well, I have the knowledge. I have the experience. I have the ability and I have the to show just how corrupt this system is, just how corrupt you people are, just how hypocritical you people are, just how stupid you people are.
1: I can't imagine hearing that in real time, how you felt uh, knowing that Ethan was still under his watch and he was um, clearly so near a breaking point.
2: Uh, crushing pressure uh I, i've been shot at I've, I've been in combat and that was still by far the most difficult uh week of my life uh having and feeling as we all did we felt a sense of responsibility to ethan and i remember going to bed that night i said we cannot fail ethan we cannot let him down we have to try to get him out of there excuse me sorry i get emotional uh just thinking about that last day nothing to
1: apologize for take your time
2: because it was was a tactical nightmare, right? Normally there's multiple entry points, right, to a structure, right? Windows, doors, two or three levels. So HRT, right, will plan multiple different ways to affect a tactical entry. Here, there's just one way in, one way out. We actually had an incredible whole of government kind of response to this. We had ground penetrating radar from the military and they'd put these big vehicles with the radar and, and looked at the side of the bunker, because we were trying to see, is there any way we could like tunnel in from the side to create another breach point? But there was none, because we had structural engineers say, hey, if you tunnel in from the side, the whole structure could collapse, right? If it collapses on Ethan, then that's a you know horrible day. And we even went so far, the FBI rented two dirt sucking trucks, which I didn't know existed. Imagine like a massive, almost like a porta potty <laughs> truck, but made to suck out dirt. In case the structure collapsed. So we had those on 24 7 standby at the crisis site to be there to respond if, God forbid, the structure collapsed. Uh, we even explored like silent drill options, which drill is not so silent. Uh, I remember asking the, the, the explosive expert, I said, Can you make an exploding cell phone? Right? Could we give Dykes another phone and maybe it would go off and neutralize in that way? I was told, No, we can't create that You know, in 12 hours. Mm. I understand. <laughs> Not something you can just whip up on site. Uh, we even explored sleeping gas as an as an option. Could we put dikes to sleep? And again, we have FDI doctors and specialists, and we all are they told us that any dosage that would put dikes to sleep could be potentially lethal to Ethan. So sleeping gas was out as an option. Uh, you know, with that ground and structure being unstable, the only thing that that I thought of that I've had noticed, again, looking at Ethan's behavior, was we'd twice delivered toys to Ethan on day two and day four, I think. And I noticed he had went to the far side of the bed, which as a hatch you know, goes down the 11 foot, 12 foot drop, then there's two beds, and he went on the far side to play with the toys, which put him as far away from the ladder well as possible in that small six by eight foot area. And I thought, how can we lure dykes up the ladder? How can we create that max distance between the subject and a victim in a really confined space, and the one person he'd expressed an interest in speaking to was his two daughters. He'd been estr- estranged from them for more than 20 years, and we called both doc, contacted both daughters, and one daughter, you know, politely said, "No, I don't want to, you know, have anything to do with my father." But Cindy was fantastic. She said, "Whatever I can do to help Ethan," and she came to the scene. So we started prepping her for potential conversation with Jim. And this is back in 2013 before Skype was super popular. Uh, And so we're talking to Brainstormer and I said, hey, let's put the daughter on a Skype session on a laptop. I'll lower it down the top of the lid and then he'll have to come up the ladder than if he wants to talk to his daughter. So it it was a parallel approach plan, which was like a trap that didn't have to be sprung. It could be sprung or it could not be sprung depending on if those conditions were met meaning the first condition is Ethan takes the toys and goes to the far side of the bed. That's condition one, because Ethan is in a safe, the safest possible area. And condition two is Dykes comes up that ladder well. So if those two conditions were met and we briefed the FBI director on this, then he said, OK, if those conditions are met, then that would open a window for possible tactical resolution. But if the conditions aren't met, then we can still go down the negotiation track. Right. We can have the daughter talk to Dykes, and try to persuade him to possibly surrender. So again, before I talk about those two tracks, negotiation Mm -hmm. and tactical, this was a kind of a perfect implementation, which provided both options depending on Dykes' choices and his reaction.
1: So your next step was implementing that conditional plan then, getting Cindy on the laptop, getting the toy um, down the hatch.
2: Right. So actually, I I briefed the, uh, uh, my good friend, Whit, was the senior team leader of the, the ground forces there on HRT. I, I first briefed him on the a plan, he loved it. He said, let's go to the HRT commander. We briefed him, he loved it, then we went to the SEC. So we first have to kind of sell it on the FBI side and to the sheriff, they all liked it. But then we also have to mm-hmm. sell it to Dykes, right? The subject always gets a vote in the resolution. So that was up to Rafferty, and in true negotiator fashion, we sell it to Dykes as, as it was his idea. Right. Hey, Jim, you said you wanted to talk to your daughter. We brought your daughter here, but we don't want to bring her down there. We're going to just lower a computer and we don't tell him how far we're going to lower it. Right. We don't go into details of it. We say we're going to lower a computer to you so you can talk to your daughter, which is what you wanted to do. All right. So he actually was very excited. He like combed his hair that morning. He put on a fresh shir- shirt because he wanted to tell his you know, daughter his story, which, again, I- I've explained to you. There's no real story, just his injustices. And we didn't brief her on the possible right tactical resolution. We were sincerely hopeful that she may be able able to persuade him to come out. But we also had that tactical option, you know, if needed. And
1: that tactical option, is this um, similar to what you outlined before, a type of sniper right there? Or is this you know, in that highly conditional, highly sensitive environment with a five-year-old in there and that latter situation, um, what was the, what was the extent of that tactical nature? Essentially, what would be unleashed if those two conditions were met appropriately?
2: So the the structure itself, right, had no windows. It was like a fatal funnel, right, straight down. And I sent you a picture, the uh, Gulf mm-hmm. Fort Seavey Battalion, Again, I refer to the whole of government response. Those CBs are awesome. They came up on day two, and the CBs created a mock-up of the bunker. And you can see it's just an incredible, you know, 15-high-foot structure, which we were able to practice on and rehearse. So each and every day, HRT was refining their assault plan, just some great creativity and initiative, and the numerous iterations of that assault planning, you know, each day made it a better and better kind of entry plan, or they would learn from it. So the number one man, he realized that it was a 12-foot drop, right? So the first thing, they, they had to come up with a quick method to safely descend 12 feet and then be ready to fight, right? So, cause jumping down 12 feet, you know, it's like, think how high that is and being ready to fight with a gun in your hands. So one of the operators had a great idea. Let's have like a metal pole, like a pull-up bar, and we'd drop down on the hatch lid and then just lower ourselves to two feet. And then I was on like day two or three, but then they realized the pole would move back and forth. The pole would roll on the wood, right? As they were dropping down, which they wanted to stability. They didn't want the pole to move. So then they put like, uh, oars on the side, right? So the oars would then not have a jump around so much, but even then the oars moved a little bit. So then they went back to the welding shop and they put the little spikes in the oars. So it would catch into the wood. Wow. So that's just an example of the iterative process the HRT operators are going through to make the plan better and better. So that number one guy, what they learned is, hey, with that bar, you can drop down, you can be in the fight, ready to fight within two and a half seconds. Like we're timing out through the fractions of seconds. And then that number one man knew, as soon as he dropped, he was gonna lunge forward and he knew he was gonna either encounter an armed subject who had already killed someone and it was gonna be a fight to the death, or he would lunge forward and encounter an innocent, scared, terrified, five-year-old child in there. So he knew it was either fight to the death or protect with my life. So he knew that going in because of all those rehearsals. And again, thanks to that mock-up that the uh, CBs had made, it actually, and then we rehearsed me lowering the computer as well. So we worked through the night uh, on Saturday night and then a little also on day seven morning, practicing, rehearsing the whole sequence of events with the breachers going up, placing small explosive charges, and then me lowering the laptop down, the number one man getting ready to enter.
1: So walk us through what
2: happened. So on, on day seven, we get the, finally get the green light from the FBI director to proceed with the plan. And the breachers are the first ones that go up. They place the, again, very small charges. The explosive charges can't be too large, right? Because it could collapse the structure. Because we want to take out those three eye bolts, those metal eye bolts mm-hmm. that have the cables which are winched down right because we want to break the eye bolts so they can lift the hatch up right because those cables are pulling down on the eye bolts preventing us from opening the hatch lid right. so that's what those three eye bolts and this again to show you the creativity the breachers have small rare earth magnets which are a little you know square like one inch by one inch very strong magnets so during a medicine delivery the breacher would go up and hover the magnet on top of the hatch lid and where it stuck they realized that was one of those eye bolts right so it' stuck there he grabbed a black sharpie right and then drew a circle around it and then next time we came up for delivery he hovered it around the other area and he found where the magnet stuck and drew a sharpie so they knew exactly where those eye bolts were so they knew exactly where to place the charges and also these charges again we have the explosive experts on HRT they'd re- they built these small little charges, these shaped charges, and practiced on a firing range, you know, there in Dothan, so they would make sure it would work on those eye bolts, and it did. And
1: obviously, in, in, included in that extensive and expert assessment, you factored in the two IEDs that were in the bunker. So how did, if, if at all, those affect this plan, this attack resolution plan, um, in terms of the firepower that you could or could not use, would they be set off, be detonated, uh, and risk Ethan's life?
2: So great question. There's actually one IED outside of the speaking tube, mm-hmm. right? And so we circled that off with sandbags, right, to contain the blast. And the second IED inside the bunker actually required kind of finite motor skill, right? I can think I explained he had to line up perfectly the gun barrel with the primer, it was a shotgun primer on the end of a PVC type, PVC tube. So we again we we're breaking this down by fractions of seconds. We knew that after the charge went off, Dykes would have to grab the rifle, and in the smoke and debris and in the aftermath of a explosive charge going off right in his head, we assessed it would take him a few seconds, if not over ten seconds, to go find that rifle mm-hmm. and then use the fine motor skill to line up the charge. So we absolutely thought through that. But in rehearsals, the team within, you know, five to seven seconds repeatedly was able to get to Dykes. Again, before we assessed, he would have time to detonate the second ID or to harm Ethan. Because ideally, we were hoping, right, if he was up the ladder exactly where we wanted and got lucky, we were hopeful that the shrapnel or the explosive force would, you know, maybe knock him out or daze him or maybe neutralize him, right, from shrapnel. That would, again, buy us some time so that HRT, again, uses that speed, surprise, bounce of action before the individual can act. So, again, rehearse, 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 Mm -hmm. trying to get down to fractions of seconds to be in there quickly before he could initiate the IDs or harm Ethan.
1: Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. And so now it's final go time. You have the green light from the director. You have the green light from all the others in charge down the chain and then you get Cindy on the phone and then or on the computer, I mean, Zoom phone. And then what happens?
2: Right. So, so I'm, I'm carrying the laptop with Cindy, which is hardwired. We didn't want any connectivity issues, of course. <laughs> uh, the one I was holding was hardwired to a van. So Cindy was protected in a van with another negotiator who had the other laptop, right, that it was connected to. And then there actually was a third laptop for the ground force commander to hold. So we go up there, uh, Breachers placed those three little charges Wait, that sorry, I Kyle,
1: Kyle, sorry. So you're saying she was actually physically there? She was in a van right there?
2: Yeah, yeah but back like, you know, 100 feet away.
1: Right, but Zoom, so that, you know, she Zoom could be anywhere. Did her father, right. did Dykes know that she was actually that close to him physically? Or did he think she was on Zoom from her home farther away?
2: Uh, good question. So he was not technically astute we had said we'd brought her to the site we said that she was there so he knew that she was there okay but we did not describe we didn't tell him she's exactly in a van you know 100 feet away he knew she was close and on site and we said hey we are law enforcement is not comfortable putting her down in the bunker lid or but down in the bunker so that's why we're going to do it via the skype session
1: Got it. But you were, he was pleased or satisfied that she was close enough and he knew she was there physically, but understood why you weren't bringing her all the way up to the edge. But she was, he knew that Correct. she was there. Okay.
2: So the breachers go places, three little shaped charges. Uh, we do our normal routine. Hey, Jim, we got the meds for Ethan. He loosened the cables up a couple inches. We lift up the hatch. We slide in the envelope with the medication that drops down. And this one was a toy delivery also. All right, so we ask him to undo the winch cables a little bit more. We have some toys, right? So we drop a bag of toys in. So it drops to 12 feet. And then he would come get it, right, the item. He wouldn't be in the bunker hatch in that. He would not be in the funnel when we drop the items down. Uh, So he gets the toys. And the one element, besides Dykes, we don't control. We don't control Ethan Mm -hmm. either. But thankfully, we can see through our covert camera. Ethan takes the toys to the bed. So fantastic. Right. He's the pattern behavior, which I observed. Ethan followed through upon and he's playing in that corner of the bed. So again, perfect uh, so far. Right. Things seem to go according to plan. And then Dykes goes up the ladder. The ground force commander, uh, or excuse me, Cindy Dykes calls out, says, Dad, it's me. Dad, it's me. Right. And we had rehearsed with her some talking points and what we wanted to try to her to say to her dad, right, to persuade him, possibly to let Ethan go. So she was ready, again with that negotiator, she calls out to her father, and then the ground force commander sees uh, Dykes's hand in front of the monitor, and he that's the second condition, right, that had to be met, mm-hmm. was Dykes up the ladder well. And so then he orders the assault, and the breachers initiate the charges. The first man goes in, and the second man is right behind him. Uh, however, the third man can't get in, and the object is to get... right five operators in rehearsals five was the most we could get inside the bunker so the object was to get five people in there as quickly as possible and you actually can see in the video the operators are almost you know nudging one another to get into the fight as i described the the very special people that are on the hostage rescue team right they train every day and they're risking their lives and here they are fighting each other's almost not fighting each other but you know they want to get in the fight so bad to save ethan that you see him uh, nudging each other to get in there as quickly as possible. However, the first man does not drop down the 12 feet. You see he ran up at the bar, he dropped down, and then his upper body is hanging up outside the bunker. It like doesn't compute, right? Like elevator shaft, normally you walk in elevator shaft, you drop down, right? You wouldn't see him anymore. So all of us, myself included, I'm there scratching my head. Like Why, why didn't he not drop down? There's nothing there, right? We The breachers had blown those charges. They lifted the hatch. He jumped in. Like, it doesn't make sense why he's not dropping to the bottom. And he's even the number one man, too, is bewildered, kind of looking down because he doesn't see Dykes, doesn't see Ethan, and he's, again, held up there by something. And the worst thing is now Dykes starts shooting at him. the number one man he can't fire back right because he doesn't have a pinpoint location on dykes and he doesn't know exactly where Ethan is so think about that he's stuck there being shot at by dykes so we are hopeful that dykes right would possibly be incapacitated or temporarily you know disoriented from the explosive charges but we're not successful now he's actively fighting so some great leadership uh uh, wit was the again the senior team leader he Decisively said, pull him out, pull him out. So the other HRT operators pull out the number one man. The doctor looks at him and says, "Are you shot? Are you okay?" And he said, "I don't know, doc. You tell me." Ugh. All right. He was so hyped up on adrenaline, adrenaline, and wasn't even know, didn't even know if he was hit or not. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, they deploy some non-lethal flashbang devices, or concussionary devices, which make a loud noise, emit smoke, and flash but they don't do any damage, right? They're just trying to really occupy dykes because they don't want them to initiate the IED. So the team leader says, let's put in a canine. We have some of the best canines in the world. And even the canine now cannot get into the bunker. There's some obstacle there preventing, again, the canine's not afraid. These dogs are tremendous assets Mm -hmm. and are truly part of the team, but the canine can't get in. So they pull the canine out and this is like a pivotal moment because the first entry, right, is unsuccessful. The number one man couldn't get in. They threw the flashbangs, and now I hear Ethan crying. We all hear Ethan crying. Just incredibly uh, hard to deal with because now we know he's he's at least alive, which is good, but we know that he's distraught, and he's in tears, you know, shrieking, and now Dykes up. Uh, he has a remote pull, which is basically a a rope connected to the IED at the speaking tube. Dykes pulls that IED. So not only is he firing up at the guy in the hole, but when the guy comes out of the hole, he then yanks the IED. So he's trying everything in his power, right, to kill law enforcement. And the canine is unsuccessful. So this is multiple failures, right? The canine couldn't get in, the HRT is lost, the element of surprise. Again, no fault to their own, but they are now receiving fire. They're unable to return fire. They've lost momentum. Can you walk us
1: through, how how many seconds has elapsed from the the first deployment after the conditions are met to now this moment? How many seconds have gone by that I'm sure felt like an eternity?
2: Yeah, It's over 30 seconds at mm. this point. Okay, And remember, we'd trained and we'd HRT commander told the director, we'll be in there in five to seven seconds, sir. Yeah. And now we're past 30 seconds. A- each second felt like an eternity. Just, again, like soul-crushing pressure on every one of us there and everyone you know, at the crisis site who was monitoring from the live feed. And the, the team leader, again, uh, wit just had a fantastic sense and read of the situation. He, he didn't speak unless he needed to. And he he knew that the team needed a little jolt, like a little spark, because again, the team was almost perplexed. This he stymied the nation's best law enforcement counterterrorism team, the FBI hostage rescue team, couldn't get in the hole for 30 seconds. Like this does not happen to HRT. And yet it was happening. And Witt said calmly, coolly, guys, this is what we do. Get in the hole. Get in the hole. Right, just that inspirational words again. It was like a electoral, uh, a, a lightning bolt, which I've never felt any time before, and it just energized the team and provided purpose and motivation. So two breachers bravely reached into the hole to see what was the obstruction, what is holding back the number one guy in the K nine right from lowering in the bunker lid. So they're being shot at. They reach in from you know different angles. One guy feels a secondary set of cables, and the other guy feels another set of cables that Dykes had added a secondary set of cables down there, like the midway point. So remember, we had looked down that whole hatch lid dozens of times on our medicine deliveries and when we were going three times a day, right? So we knew and had seen there was nothing down there past that first set of cables. Well, Dykes had added a secondary set of cables that very morning on day seven, And that's what it it was like a crisscross, imagine like a spider web of three cables. That's why the number one man couldn't go down. So the breachers, again, one guy uses a shotgun, he shoots away the one or two on his side. The other one has cable cutters and he snips it and they say breach is clear. All right, now this is a moment of truth. Think about, put yourself in the number one man's position for a moment. You know there's a man down there who's already committed murder. He's actively fighting. He's waiting to kill whoever comes down that hole. But he knew it was his job. He told me later, it was my responsibility to get in the hole. And he felt like he let the team down because he didn't get in the hole, even though it was clearly not his responsibility. And I, as I mentioned to you, I've been on many high-risk operations and arrests uh, domestically and overseas. Uh, I've been in shootings. I've been on over hundred combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan with U.S. military special mission mission units. So I I know what it's like to go through a door and not know what's on the other side. But here he knew exactly what was on the other side. He knew there was a determined fighter waiting to kill him. Yet the number one man didn't pause, didn't hesitate. He jumped right back in the hole. So just incredible Mm -hmm. uncommon valor and heroism displayed Remember the number one man He has a split second decision. He's gonna lunge forward and encounter either Dykes who's actively fighting with a gun to kill him or an innocent five-year-old. He lunges forward and like a light switch, he has to decide, fight or protect. That's what all law enforcement officers have to do in a split second when they're confronted with a potential lethal situation or an innocent victim. He lunges forward and he encounters Ethan. He cradles Ethan in his arms, he turns away from Dykes, He tells Ethan, You're going to be okay, Ethan. You're going to be okay. Shielding his body, protecting Ethan with his very own body. The number two man, and I must say, give credit to my Marine brothers. First man was an Iraq Marine veteran, jumps in the hole. Second man is an Army Ranger. Third man is a a Navy SEAL. So great, kind of combined former military task force, which enters in the bunker. The second man enters uh, the Army individual engages, he shoots Dykes twice in the chest, Dykes closes the distance and the pistol goes out of battery, which means the pistol no longer functions on a Glock pistol. If you depress the muzzle while you're pulling the trigger, you can actually release the slide and the weapon will no longer function. Mm. That's exactly what happens. So he Dykes after being shot twice, still advances towards him and the operator's pistol goes out of battery and they start tussling they're going on the ground to fight and the number three man has a flashlight on his barrel on his rifle his m4 he turns on his light he sees a pair of blue jeans he knows that all the hrt operators are wearing cry this you know camouflage uh green uniform and he knows it's not ethan so he follows up and then the other individual will transition from his non-functioning pistol to his rifle and the number two and three man uh, engage and eliminate dykes Then four and five go in, they extract Ethan, they take him, the number one man. And you're seeing out here in the video, Ethan coming out in a red shirt.
1: I wasn't there and I feel emotional hearing and seeing this. And I can't imagine the overwhelming emotion that you must have felt when you saw Ethan come safe out
2: of there. Uh, When when Ethan emerged uh, out of that bunker alive and i could see he was breathing and i was five feet from him i i I almost couldn't contain myself all of us had contained and kind of suppressed the you know feelings and compartmentalized ourselves he's he's rushed to the hospital and i remember walking out and just uh, bursting into tears i I couldn't contain it anymore uh it's just such a jubilant feeling and actually a relief of you know stress and and pressure pressure and knowing that you know, I, I, I you know, I was able to you know kind of orchestrate the plan, but then seeing the heroics of those five individuals that went in the hole and risked everything to try to save an innocent child, it's a, you know it's a remarkable story, showing the FBI and law enforcement at, at its finest. And you know, to me,
1: as an average American hearing this, I feel like it's it's a bookend story of heroism because we had Charles Poland in the beginning, who's just, you know, an average person too, an ordinary man that did something extraordinary. And he protected those kids. He gave his life protecting those kids. And then we have at the finale of this horrific seven-day event, these operators, all of you who have dedicated your lives to serving others and knew that you would be ready to sacrifice themselves to protect Ethan and to protect all of you who are there. Can you share whether there were any injuries sustained by the operators?
2: No, it's miraculous. When you look down the bunker hatch lid, is it like going a small, maybe three by three foot area, the 12 foot drop. And afterwards I looked down there, there's bullet holes all around the wood and the operator was in the center of that. And for him not to get hit, Again, miraculous is the only word that can dis- describe it, that he was not injured. So thankfully, all operators were unscathed, and Ethan was unscathed as well. Uh, although he did mention to the doctors at the hospital when he was, he was first checked out by an FBI paramedic at the scene and then taken to the ambulance, which was waiting for him. But he tells the doctors, man, those guys shoot a lot. <laughs> he thought you know, the flashbangs were us shooting at him, <laughs> which which we clearly were not uh, shooting at Ethan, but uh, his comment, you know, still kind of brings a chuckle. Yeah. But the fact that no no one was injured is uh, mind boggling, considering how small space it was and how many you know rounds he fired. You know, over fifteen. In fact, he you know initiated one IED. Thankfully, he did not initiate this, the other IED. The IED. Inside the bunker, uh, we actually sent details back to our explosives laboratory experts at Quantico, and they created the exact replica, and this is a test shot. They fired it on a range, and they assessed that if the ID inside the bunker was detonated, it would be lethal to Ethan.
1: I mean, I think the best word you used indeed was a miracle, God's protection. Kyle, what happened next?
2: Uh, Ethan was reunited with his mother and did, did go back to school. So it was a fantastic uh, to see him right emerge relatively unscathed considering the horrible, horrible circumstances with which with, with which Ethan was, you know, trapped and, and kidnapped. He is now actually thankfully uh, been adopted by uh, the Turner family, a local pastor there, he and his wife. So he's in their their uh, custody and care now and he's doing well. So we are all, you know, ecstatic. The hundreds of law enforcement, you know, who were there at the crisis uh, to see Ethan, you know, doing doing well now, obviously just warms our hearts and and makes it all uh, worthwhile.
1: And many of you were, rightly so, received uh, top commendation from the government uh, for your heroics that day. Can you share with us those awards?
2: Yes, yeah, so the uh, five operators who jumped in the hole. Right, were the true heroes of Midland City by far. They deserve all the credit, and they were recipients of the Presidential Medal of Valor. So they went to the White House and were presented with that by the President himself, which is fantastic uh, recognition. Uh, there were about seven other seven others of us, uh, and I am not a hero. Uh, I served in the served in the company of heroes, uh, but the other seven of us received the Attorney General's award. For exceptional heroism, which is the Department of Justice Justice's highest award for valor, and we received that from the Attorney General himself.
1: I see you as a hero. I see you all as heroes, Kyle. Thank you so much for sharing this story in um, such a deeply connective way, because I I know I would think every time you share it, it relives what was a prolonged nightmare for those seven days. Thank you for your service and thank you for sharing your time with us today.
2: Thank you. I must say it was a collective team effort. There were uh, others there uh, with me as well. So I I cannot take uh, all the credit. I wanna recognize that in every one of these crises, it is law enforcement coming together, working collectively uh, to the successful outcome and resolution. So it's really a team of teams I was just fortunate to be part of.
1: Thanks for listening. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.